Welcome to another episode of In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Vishak Arnadjani, and I'm joined today by Professor Vincent Brown. Professor Brown is Charles Warren Professor of American History and Professor of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. His new book, Tacky's Revolt, The Story of an Atlantic Slave War, out now from Harvard University Press, is a history of the largest slave uprising in the 18th century British Atlantic, and casts this event in a new geography of forced migration, imperial conflict, racial capitalism. So could you tell us a little bit about how the project came about in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I was still finishing my first book, The Reaper's Garden, um, when I conceived this second book, which was about 2005. And at the time, uh, the United States was about a year into the Iraq War, um, and I had been thinking about that a lot. And it was already clear, uh, maybe two years into the Iraq War, and it was already clear that the United States was losing, right? That the most powerful military force in the world, maybe in the history of the world, was losing to this building insurgency. Um, and so I started thinking much more about empire and insurgency uh, as, a, as a concept, about how one could write longer histories of empire and insurgency, um, about whether or not like this was the first time that um, an empire with this much power relative to the forces it was fighting found itself on the back foot, found itself found itself losing. Um, and I remember being uh, at a conference in Rio de Janeiro, actually, at the Oswald Conference. That's the Association for the Study of the Worldwide African Diaspora. And I was in a panel or something, and my mind was drifting, and, and I often have my, my best ideas when I'm bored. And <clears throat> I can't tell you what the panel was about. But I can tell you that I really quickly wrote out an outline uh, in 2005 that, that kind of became the book that I eventually wrote. Not exactly the book that I eventually wrote, but it kind of was. And the book was going to be called The Coromonte Wars, Empire and Insurgency in the Atlantic World. Um, and, and what it was going to do was look at the roots, routes, and reverberations of all of the various slave revolts that were staged by uh, what were then called Coromante people. And these are people from the Gold Coast of West Africa, what's today roughly Ghana, who became notorious, famous for staging revolts against slave societies from the late 17th through the first three quarters of the 18th century. And they did this from Suriname all the way up to New York City, with one of the largest of these revolts being in Jamaica in 1760 and 1761, the revolt that's commonly known as Tacky's Revolt. So my original idea was to kind of write a big synthetic history of all of these revolts. And I'm in general a kind of synthetic thinker. I mean, when people talk about the distinction between lumpers and splitters, right, people who prefer synthesis and people who prefer kind of very fine-grained analysis, I tend to prefer synthesis but not the kind of sweeping generalized textbook syntheses that you know, synthetic writers are often known for. I like really fine-grained kind of nuanced synthesis. And so what I thought I would do was really think about how one looked at the roots of these slave revolts, all of the various circuits they passed through around the Atlantic world, and then trace out their reverberations. Um, I thought that I could kind of develop a, a broad synthesis of revolt in the Atlantic world but be very, very sensitive to how things played out on the ground as they were evolving. So that was the kind of genesis of the idea. And over time, it was clear that I didn't have 
uh, equal amount of information. The sources weren't the same for all of these various revolts um, in all of these various places. And that, you know, if, if I tried to pursue my original idea, it may wind up being that kind of textbook-like synthesis, one thing after another, this revolt, then this revolt, then this revolt, then that revolt. And so what I decided to do instead was take one of the revolts about which I knew the most, which was this Jamaican revolt in 1760 and 61, and then try to tell the story of that entire period and of the Coromantes and their revolts through that Jamaican revolt. So kind of use that um, as, you know, the kind of the grain of sand through which I could see the larger world of these Coromante revolts. And that's, that's how the book evolved over time. But really, I would say that it still had its genesis in that original moment of thinking about imperial warfare, um, being a, a citizen of the United States of America, which frankly has been engaged in overseas wars my entire life. Mm -hmm. And the place of the event then I was really fascinated by, especially in how you write the whole story out because um, you've written elsewhere, of course, about the place of narrative and the place of event, especially when, um, <laughs> something like this or something like the history of slavery and abolition are so kind of chronologized or, or even kind of overdetermined in the way that they're slotted into a particular kind of history of, say, um, the, the, the United States or of Europe and its relationship to abolition, um, what, what have you. So I guess I, I wanted to start by asking what the place of narrative is then when your subject is an, is an event like this one that has almost like a... Um, yeah, the, the status in a certain kind of story, but but not necessarily the kind of story that you want to, to place it in. You know, you, you're very conscious in the book about writing about slave revolt as race war, for example, or of talking mm -hmm. about the necessity of the history of, of, of the West African interior as a part of this imperial story. Things that are historiographical claims that you're making, again, via this particular event. Um, how did you go about kind of navigating narrative then when, you know, you're also hitting all of these marks? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I guess it really comes down to kind of what are the received conventions for narrating certain kinds of things, and then how those either do or don't fit the kinds of things you're trying to observe. Um, and it was very clear that if I was writing a story of these Coromante Wars staged by Africans, uh, from the Gold Coast, who were drawing upon their own histories that didn't necessarily overlap in any way neatly with the kind of received story of the rise and progress of liberal freedom uh, in the Atlantic world, that I was going to have to stretch the received narratives, that I was going to have to find new narrative conventions, new styles of narration to encompass the story that I wanted to tell, to really account for the evidence that that I could find in my sources. <clears throat> um and so I think the, the key hack for me was just starting geographically and thinking about how it is that one could integrate the history of West Africa with the history of the Americas in a way that was going to tell the story in a satisfying, satisfying way. And I guess what I mean by that is, you know, we've kind of grown accustomed to thinking culturally about the transformation of African to American culture in studies of the African diaspora. So we think about you know, the, tra the transformation of African kind of worldviews and practices and forms of life um, as they encountered slavery in the Americas. We haven't done as good a job in thinking about how it is that African historical transformations, right, on their own, 
shape the way things play out in the Americas. And partly that's the result of an, a received convention that really kind of starts with the, the birth of, of Western philosophy. So G.W.F. Hegel in the early 19th century says that Africa forms no historical part of the world. And then, in fact, when the disciplines are set up in the late 19th century in Germany and the United States, African history isn't really a, a subject for historians. You know, what do historians cover? Historians tend to cover elite political maneuvers, right, in, in Western nations. And it's not really until the mid-20th century that African history, and especially with decolonization, that African history becomes a subject unto itself. So we're starting way behind in thinking about how African history matters uh, in the Americas. And so what I wanted to do was build on an effort by scholars like John Thornton and Linda Haywood and James Sweet and others to show how not only African cultural practices, but African historical transformations reverberate in the Americas. And these Coromanti Wars seem to be an excellent way to do that. Now, as you said, that required me to kind of eschew the, West, the, the conventions for writing the history of the Americas that see mostly that rise in progress of liberal freedom culminating in the American and Haitian and French revolutions. And some people acknowledge the Haitian as kind of part of that part of that age of revolutions and really seeing it as something different, really seeing it as something what I call the age of slave war, which is largely continuous uh, from the late 17th through the 18th century with an end that, that I could not finally discern, right? Um, because a lot of the things that, that gave what I call slave war um, its major contours, rapacious explo exploitation, racial violence, the proliferation of wars within wars continued even after the end of slavery. Um, so in some ways there's a kind of, I guess, a counter narrative going on that accounts for some of the continuities of exploitation and violence across a large geographical area, especially imperial violence, um, that, that I was seeing with this story. Now, it's not to say that there were no antecedents to this and, or no models for me to follow. Certainly, C.L.R. James's Black Jacobins is one such. Even though that situates the Haitian Revolution firmly within kind of, you know, the modern French Revolution and sees it as part of the making of the modern world, and people have seen it so afterwards, geographically, what C.L.R. James did, what... Uh, folks like Eric Williams or Walter Rodney did was they showed the geopolitical implications of slavery and of slaves politics right on a much larger canvas and so in some ways I, I also wanted to, to emulate that effort which is to show how what's happening among the enslaved has these geopolitical implications in frankly the same way you know what was happening with these insurgents in Iraq in, in the first decade of the 21st century was having geopolitical implications well outside that region. Mm -hmm. and, and what is it about Tacky's revolt that allowed you to kind of move from that granularity out? Because, you know, you began by saying that there were a number of such um, or similar events. This period was, was continuous. What is it about this event that allowed you to pull all of that out? Well, um... Again, I guess the, 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 the key metaphor for me there was then um, seeing Taki's revolt as an eddy within larger currents. Um, and again, the kind of geographical metaphor was important there to kind of, if I think about, you know, all of the various currents that fed into Taki's revolt and then see Taki's revolt only as an eddy uh, within the same flows 
Then the story became to chart all of those various flows as they came to Eddie and Tacky's revolt and then exited um, into a kind of set of reverberations that I could trace out, right? So that became a way <clears throat> of writing the story within this much larger story. And I guess that metaphor of an eddy within currents kind of became literal in the history by thinking about Tacky's Revolt as a war within a series of other wars. So Tacky's Revolt was not only the race war between the black slaves and the largely white masters, it was also part of the slaving wars in West Africa. And those slaving wars were wars partly instigated by, by European slaving powers, by the sale of firearms, especially to, to Africans, but also had their own internal causes. So there were African polities that had their own conflicts with each other. And anytime they went to war, often fueled by those arms sales by Europeans, um, soldiers would get captured, enslaved, sold to the Europeans on the coast, and they came out to the Americas, where sometimes they regrouped even former enemies coming together because maybe they spoke the same languages or worshiped similar gods or recognized similar kinds of political authority vis-a-vis -vis other Africans. And then they staged these revolts against plantation society. So again, Taki's revolt was an outgrowth of those slaving wars in West Africa, as well as a race war between black slaves and their European masters. At the same time, because, because people had already been in conflict within Africa, and then the kinds of societies they entered, the brutal slave societies they entered, um, they also had conflicts with each other that played out you know, in different ways than they had in Africa, but there were communal conflicts, right? Over the nature of belonging among black people, among, slave, among enslaved people, um, over their own aspirations and claims to leave some kind of lasting legacy. And those did not end, even though they transformed when people left Africa and were enslaved in the Americas. So before we even get to these former soldiers and others regrouping so they can fight a war against plantation society, they've got to conduct a series of struggles among themselves. So that was really about taking the politics of the enslaved seriously, not just the politics between masters and slaves, but among the enslaved themselves as another kind of conflict or war um, that fed into these others. And finally, there were the imperial wars that I talked about. The imperial wars to take territory from indigenous peoples in the Americas, to make over that territory for capitalist agriculture. Also, imperial wars against other imperial powers, right, to kind of harness those territories um, and defend them. You know, Britain defending its territory from France, defending its territory from Spain, uh, defending its territory from the Dutch, etc. And one of the largest of those in the 18th century was the Seven Years' War, initially between Britain and France, but ultimately between Britain, France, and Spain, uh, that has often been called the First European World War. And Tacky's Revolt happened to occur in 1760 and 61 in the midst of that Seven Years' War. And in fact, was one of the Seven Years' Wars, Seven Year Wars' uh, largest battles, um, although it's rarely mentioned in discussions of the Seven Years' War. I mean, I think you can read, you know, Fred Anderson's six, seven hundred page book on the Seven Years' War and Tacky's Revolt doesn't get a mention, despite the fact that that book is relatively thorough and comprehensive. And this despite the fact that many of the soldiers, sailors, and Marines who fought in more famous campaigns during the Seven Years' War at Quebec 
or in Senegal or in Martinique and Guadeloupe, then went to Jamaica to suppress Hackey's revolt. In fact, the commander of the station in Jamaica was third in command to General Wolfe at the Battle of Quebec. Um, and that is very well known as part of the Seven Years' War. So what I wanted to do is also write this as part of the Seven Years' War. So you can see these four wars at once, the European imperial campaigns, the African slaving wars, the communal conflicts among the enslaved, and the Seven Years' War as all contributing to, as all being the currents that eddy and tackies revolt. So kind of that's how that geographical metaphor then you know, translated into the way I wrote that history and into the narrative conventions that I had to employ in order to bring it all together. Mm -hmm. And in talking of um, geographical metaphor and, and just kind of the way the chronology and space come up in your book, um, I, it's, it's really striking the way that you use biography and place and perspective uh, on, on a couple of registers, right? On the one hand, uh, we'll, we'll get to this in a second, but the way in which you're reading your sources um, you know, foregrounds, especially the, the kind of creativity and, and with and against the grain uh, reading that needs needs doing. But but also you write in your introduction, for instance, uh, quote, complex patterns of alliance and antagonism over time and great distance define relationships like those among Apongo, uh, John Cope and Arthur Forrest, three of the figures uh, with which with which you begin. How do you go about conceptualizing something like that over over the course of, you know, four wars or or so many sets of um, historiographical stakes? Okay, that's a great question. Um, I think Deshaies goes back to one of my initial impulses with the story, which was to try and figure out how I was going to integrate uh, African history, West African history, into the history of not only Jamaica, but the larger Atlantic world and the Americas. And again, um, Africanist scholars had started that effort, especially with John Thornton's Africa and Africans in the Making of the Atlantic World, published in 1992 and then a second edition in 1998, um, where there was an assertion that kind of what happened in Africa mattered in the Americas. And what I wanted to do was play that out. And so kind of much of the work that I had to do was figure out how it was going to trace, as you said, in a more granular way, how it is that this African history played out. And that required me moving between different scales. Right. So on the one hand, one could kind of make the very broad assertions and show broad patterns. But I thought to really be convincing and show in detail how these histories were integrated, I had to get down to the level of the actual itineraries of some of the people involved. Right. And so I began with the itineraries of these three people who were fundamental um, to the way the revolt played out. And it was also a source that I was intrigued by. Um, People um, have known for a long time about uh, uh, a plantation overseer in Jamaica named Thomas Thistlewood. At least, you know, scholars of, of slavery and especially Anglophone slavery have known about Thomas Thistlewood for some time. And Thistlewood was an English overseer who went to Jamaica in 1750 and died there in 1786. And he left a detailed diary of his, of his more than three decades time there. And the diary is a, is a brutal record at this time. And he was, he was not a sentimental person, and he wasn't particularly self-conscious about what he was doing. This is before he felt he had to justify anything that he did. Um, and so mostly it's a record of his sexual exploitation, rape of enslaved women, of his planting activities, some observations of what was going on. But he was also a, a survivor of Tacky's Revolt. And so he gives a kind of blow-by-blow -blow account of what happened during Tacky's Revolt in his Westmoreland parish. One of the other things he does is he talks about 
this amazing meeting that supposedly happened, and I think it did happen, between one of the leaders of, of the revolt, a man named Wager, um, and a man named John Cope Sr., who had been the chief agent of Cape Coast Castle, which was Britain's principal fort on the Gold Coast. And Thomas Thistlewood was, uh, was employed by John Cope's son, John Cope Jr. And so he wrote, so he had a good reason to know about the story, and he wrote that, you know, Wager, who was then named Opongo when he was in West Africa, used to go to Cape Coast Castle, or at least went once, to trade with John Cope Sr. And he came with about a hundred, a guard of about a hundred people, and met with John Cope Sr., and then at some point, John Cope was um, retired from Cape Coast Castle, um, set himself up to slave trade uh, in, in England, and then set himself up in Jamaica as a planter. Some years after that, Opongo was himself captured, enslaved, sold to the Europeans. He came out to Jamaica where he again encountered John Cope, who, Thistlewood says, laid out a tablecloth for him for Sunday visits and treated him as a man of honor, even though he was now enslaved, and also insinuated that when Opongo, now named Wager, uh, that when his master returned to the island, somehow they would have Opongo Wager redeemed and sent home. Now, Wager's master was a Royal Navy ship captain, um, and the Royal Navy ship captain did not arrive in the island until about two weeks after John Cope Sr. died. And somewhere in the four years between 1756 and when he died and 1760, uh, Wager becomes one of the principal leaders of Tacky's Revolt, um, this largest slave rebellion in the 18th century British Empire. So I was intrigued by that story and thought, you know, if I could unwind that story, which was already significantly different than the common story we tell about slave revolts that happened just between, you know, masters and slaves on one plantation or in one colony. Um, that I could tell a transatlantic story through the, the itineraries of these three people. And so I, some of the first early research that I did was really to try and nail down whatever I could of that story. So I started with John Cope Sr.'s time in West Africa, and I found that he was there from 1737 to 1742. And so during that distinct five-year period, I started checking the records of the castle fort for anyone named Opongo who could come through. And what that meant was really looking at the receipts of castle expenses, where they would expend a certain amount to entertain African visitors, dignitaries who they were trying to trade with, and often they would list their names. And so I was just looking for Opongo's name. Now, as it happened, I didn't find anybody strictly named Opongo um, in those records. But I found all sorts of plausible scenarios for people very much like Opongo to have met John Cope and not finding a distinct biography for Opongo, I was able then to say, but this is the context in which he must have encountered John Cope. And that context includes a number of African dignitaries visiting with John Cope. It includes a number of African wars where, where elite people are enslaved, captured, and sold to the Europeans. It, in, it, uh, it encompasses a number of attacks by Africans on Europeans and their forts, which would have taught anybody like Opongo that Europeans were no people to be in awe of, right? So by not finding a, a, a single biography for Opongo, I was rather able to create a kind of composite character in some ways um, around the plausible experiences that he might have had 
before he arrived in Jamaica. Now, the third character was a bit easier to follow because uh, Arthur Forrest was in the British Royal Navy and the Royal Navy records are quite good. And so I was able to trace his career aboard a bunch of Royal Navy warships. And at one point I found that um, when he was uh, commander of the HMS Wager, he had a man named James Wager aboard the ship. You can find that man on the ship's manifest. And I am pretty sure that that James Wager would have been the Wager who led the slave revolt later. He served on a Royal Navy warship for about a year from 1746 uh, through 1747. And then he was put on Forest Plantation as a driver, meaning that he was employed to keep other slaves in subjection, which he did for a time until he became a slave rebel. So by kind of interweaving the stories of these three men, I was able to tell a story of, honestly, diplomacy, alliance, antagonism, and warfare that's quite different than the, the traditional story of a slave revolt that had been told to date. Mm-hmm. And, and how then, I mean, you, you touched on this a little bit, but how do you go about um, reading sources for the kinds of uh, anxieties, antagonisms that you're looking for, particularly, you know, on the one hand, when it's a project of tracing something that you think happened and and, and you're trying to kind of construct a world in which it could have happened. Um, Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, trying to read, as you put it, um, reading these records both against the grain to investigate things they were never meant to illustrate and along Mm -hmm. the grain to note how they constrain and shape our knowledge. We can tell plausible stories about the aspirations and strivings of the enslaved. That's a little bit of what you, what you just mentioned, but can you, can you talk a little bit about moving between those two um, practices of, of reading the archive like this? Sure. I mean, that gets into a little bit into the kind of debate that people have been having about the archive and the kinds of histories archives afford, archival sources afford, that we've been having, especially in black studies for some time, but, you know, have been going on in historical study for as long as historians have been using sources, frankly. And I guess I can gloss it this way, which is that there are, you know, roughly at least three ways to read a source. Um, The first way is the way that historians are often criticized for reading sources Uh, which is as transparent reflections of what happened. I don't think many historians are actually that naive, but we're criticized as being that naive, so let's let's just go with it. You can read a source as if it's just reporting what happened, right? Transparently. Um, and then you can just kind of write as if the source is, you know, is, is the authenticated truth. Um, the second way of reading a source, and I think you find this commonly in literary studies, um, takes off after really what Edward Said did with Orientalism which is to think about a source only as a representative convention, which tells you much more about the conventions for representing certain kinds of things than it does, tells you about the things that are you know, purport to be represented, right? So again, Orientalism doesn't tell you anything about the so-called, so-called Orientals. It only tells you how Europeans and Western conventions for thinking about uh, people in the Middle East viewed, uh, uh, view people in the Middle East, right? So it tells you more about Europeans, frankly, and their ways of thinking than it does about what they say they were seeing. Okay, and I think that's, you know, that that has to be accounted for. At the same time, one still wants to know what was happening with those people, so-called Orientals. Um, And so that leads to the, the, the kind of more dialectical way of reading sources, which as, you know, one has those conventions for representing the world, but those conventions encounter something out there. 
um, and that they are provoked, they are shaped by the encounter between those conventions and the things that they're trying to represent, which is why even with, you know, pattern conventions, they're never reproduced exactly. They reproduce with differences. And in those differences, one can see the effect, the impact of the encounter with that outside. Um, and so, as I say in the book, um, you know, black people shape the sources that, that, they, that they're, hard, they're hardly described by um, as surely as water shapes the contours of stone. Just because you can't see them transparently through the sources doesn't mean they didn't shape the way those sources came about. And in that, you can see a lot of the anxieties of the people who are keeping these records. Um, um, Ann Stoller often talks about kind of the anxieties one reads when you read along the grain of an archive, right? That you can see what, what Europeans wanted to describe, how they wanted the world to be, and how the world kept refusing, right, their idea of what it should be. And in that refusal of black people to play along with European desires for an orderly plantation society, one can think a lot about what those plausible narratives are for what black people wanted, how they opposed uh, Europeans. So really, it's a kind of creative way of thinking about sources as artifacts, right? Not just facts on the ground, but artifacts that were produced by uh, their encounter with the world. That's kind of what I do with all these sources. And so... You know, when I look at um, something like Thistlewood or like Edward Long, who was a Jamaican historian, uh, was an English historian who uh, had a plantation in Jamaica and wrote a three volume history of Jamaica in 1774 that has the first um, the first detailed account of Tacky's revolt, which has become the standard account for the last 250 years or so. Um, I see Edward Long's description of that event as a product of his anxiety of living through it as a product of the fear provoked by the fact that they did not control this world of the enslaved in the way that they wanted to. Uh, and when you see that text as reactive, not simply as uh, an imposition on the world, but as a reaction to the world, all kinds of things become evident that I think are not evident when you only think about the limitations of European worldviews, right? The limitations are certainly there, but those limitations are also provoked, shaped, um, contoured by by the black people outside of those conventions. Mm -hmm. And it seems like there are, one way of reading your book and, and kind of thinking through the narrative that you present is really along a couple of, of axes. And of course, part of what you're telling us is that, you know, these things needn't and, and indeed shouldn't be held apart. But on, on the one hand, you have sort of anxieties, fears, hopes, this imaginative landscape of what, slave society, white slave society feared would happen and what enslaved Africans uh, sort of brought to bear on the, mm. the, the kind of world of immense violence um, and at the same time immense possibility that they found themselves in. And on the other hand, this is a book about war and concrete political aims and concrete military yeah. aims that people um, Bring, bring into being. And so I guess I, I'm wondering then off of what you just said, you know, you lay out a series of concrete aims for the, for the actors in your, in your book, for example, that include um, all of the people that I just mentioned. So to quote, uh, th these aims include accumulate, uh, to accumulate wealth, build state power, strike for freedom, or merely survive. And then we have this, mm -hmm. again, landscape of anxieties, aims, fears. 
so it seems like the story is, is a balancing act between these anxieties and then the more kind of, if I may, sort of concrete aims and political and military goals that people with mm-hmm. access to um, this incredibly mutable world, with access to weaponry, with access to land, uh, can bring about via collective mm-hmm. action, via taking up all of these various tools that they have at their disposal. So how, how do we then go about conceptualizing a world of, of both of these things at the same time of, of both of these axes of anxieties, as well as these incredibly concrete um, life and death aims. Yeah. So again, I think maybe this goes back to your early question about narrative, Disha. Um, and we have some narrative conventions, uh, especially in the United States. Um, and they're especially prominent in Hollywood cinema where, where everything is organized around what they call central conflict theory. Um, that is, you know, one has a character with a desire and there are obstacles in the way of that desire. And there's an overcoming of those obstacles to achieve the object of desire in the end. Right. I often call that a triumph of the will narrative and, and the allusion to Lenny Reifenstahl is not incidental. Um, the idea that like that kind of organizes maybe 90% of Hollywood narrative, right? Desire and the aim to achieve the desire and the plot is all about overcoming those obstacles. So in some ways I kind of wanted to play with that um, as, as, a, as an inducement to some readers who may not you know, initially want to uh, engage all the complexity of this world that they may be encountering for the first time to say like, here's a point of entry into the story. Three characters with various desires. Uh, and I'm going to try and lay out what those are based on the world that they're living in, based on the obstacles that they find themselves confronted with, and then try to hang the rest of the story, all of these kind of these these the the the, the larger historical geography onto these characters to kind of take you into that world. Now it winds up not being a triumph of the will narrative, um, at least in my view. Um, but that is but that is a kind of inducement. It's a kind of familiar trope that I'm trying to, to get to get people into the story with. So when thinking about precisely what you, what you just said, how we can narrativize desire and desires, in, in this case, concrete um, political and, and military ends in this kind of massive world system um, that you lay out when you, when you open the book, um, I, I'm thinking as well about your earlier book, The Reaper's Garden, which, of course, deals with um, epidemiology, death, and transmission um, as, again, another analogy for, uh, quote, following roots of cause and effect. Um, mm-hmm. So can you say a little bit more then about how that was on your mind when writing this story of movement, transmission, ideas, aims, um, and if that's also been on your mind right now, as we as we record this in the middle of uh, a global pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no way of kind of getting around the fact that we are now in a global pandemic um, and that that is on everyone's minds. Um, it's been on my mind um, as well as I think about how to talk about this book. But honestly, um, that way of thinking that we're all learning now, that epidemiological way of thinking that we're all learning now has been something that I've been continuing with for quite a while now. 
Um, my father was a, is a microbiologist. He taught medical microbiology at University of California, San Diego. So in some ways, he's kind of been warning me that this kind of thing was happening, you know, all my life, <laughs> right? That this was going to happen. Um, and, and here it is. But also in the way that he thinks, the way that I learned to think about cause and effect doesn't start with the nation state, doesn't start with the empire. It starts with a vector. It starts with a causal agent. And that causal agent moves around according to channels that causal agents can find and then either takes root or dissipates um, depending on the environment that it finds itself in. And so both in Reaper's Garden and this book, uh, Intactable, I am writing in that way. Like I don't necessarily start with the, the nation state or the British Empire or Jamaica or even the Gold Coast as the natural container of the history. Um, those are things that matter, absolutely, uh, and help to determine the course that this history takes, absolutely, but they don't contain the history. Um, and that, I think, is a crucial distinction between kind of the way I have been working in these two books um, and the way a lot of people work, at, you know, where you start with national history. For example, you know, the history of slavery uh, in the United States supposedly starts in 1619. Right. Why 1619? Because the Virginia colony um, as a continuous colony in North America becomes part of the United States. Was it the only British colony with slavery? Nah. Was it the first colony in the Americas with slavery? Nah. Like the only thing that makes 1619 a really important date is it's, you know, slavery is continuous from there through the United States. So, again, the history of the United States becomes the container for the history of slavery. Why should that be? History of slavery exceeded the history of the United States. The history of Africans and Af the African diaspora exceeds the history of any one empire. The history of slave revolt, the history of imperial warfare exceeds the history of any of these places. So, again, there are lots of ways to frame these histories. Uh, and what you want to do, at least what I would like to do, is say, what's the story I'm telling and what's the best framing to describe the phenomena that are playing out? in this story, right? To not start and end with the nation state, to not start and end even with the Atlantic world, but to start and end with how these slave revolts actually um, emerge and transform and have an impact on the places where they, where, where they happen. That's a subtly different way of thinking, a way of thinking that's frankly far more appropriated to the nature of global pandemics, um, or frankly, the nature of imperial warfare, than it is strictly to the, the history of nation states um, and empires. And, uh, and you know, you're very clear in the book that the, the story that you're telling, Taki's Revolt as an event, um, these things have very real and very immediate political implications. So for instance, you write, quote, their struggles illuminate cracks in the edifice of racial capitalism, reminding us that another world is not only possible, another world is inevitable. Um, so could you, could you tell us more then about how you were thinking about these political stakes when you were writing the book and, and what you hope people um, will take from it in thinking about our moment. Well, I mean, the first thing is, is everybody who, who uses the term racial capitalism um, knows or should know is that it's, it's a transnational phenomenon, right? Um, it's not something that's kind of limited to the United States or South Africa. Um, and, you know, thinking this way, can help us understand how the United States is, a, again, an artifact of these larger processes of slavery, war, and empire. The second thing is that 
the history of slavery and slave revolt has often been written into the history of racial politics and race relations, um, first and foremost. So, you know, we think about the history of slavery as being about the problem of, you know, um, civic exclusion, right? People who don't have the same rights um, as, as white people in most cases, but as people who are closer to the kind of the center of the subject of, 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 of a state. Um, and that's not really what I'm trying to do here. Um, we think about kind of Martin Luther King, right? Um, he identified three major problems that were, in his view, going to doom the United States if we couldn't solve them. Racism, which we talk a lot about, especially in conversations about Martin Luther King Jr. Poverty, which we talk less about, but increasingly we have to talk more about, but also warfare. Racism, poverty, and warfare were the, the three big ones. And I don't think that we have contended as nearly as much as we should with the problem of, of global warfare, and especially in the United States, the problem of this gigantic military machine that we've built um, that's useless to us in, in the context of this pandemic. Um, I mean, look, there's, you know, I saw one cartoon that was going around that, that, that showed like the price of a ventilator at $15,000 and the price of one of these smart bombs at, you know, you know, one million plus or something. And the joke was, what's the difference between these two things? There's no shortage of smart bombs, but there's a shortage of ventilators. And in some ways, like the fact that we spend so much more than any you know, military competitor on armaments is why we can't have nice things like a functioning healthcare system, right? Uh, unless we address the challenge of, of how we are organized for, for global warfare, I don't think we can have a, a, a decently functioning society. Um, and so that, that to me is, is, is quite an urgent question, made even more urgent by the situation that we're in now, um, where we find ourselves so clearly unprepared for a problem that has been predicted for some time. Um, this is not a problem that nobody could foresee. Uh, and it's playing out in just the way that many people who think about global pandemics thought it would play out. And yet here we find ourselves you know, focused on, on other things. Um, so that's an issue. Um, the fact that, you know, I, as I said, I, you know, I'm, I'm a little over 50 years old. I was born in 1967 at the height of the Vietnam War. And I can't think of a five-year period where the U.S. military hasn't been abroad somewhere um, engaged in some operation against somebody, which is frankly a half century of permanent war. And even if you don't want to accept that, you have to acknowledge that we've been, been in, a, in, in permanent war at least since September 11, 2001. Um, that's a long time. That's, that's not normal. Uh, and so stories about wars that have no end, stories about wars within wars, stories about wars that don't draw clear distinctions between combatants and civilians, I think those are the kind of stories we need to help us understand our present situation, um, as well as stories about racial exclusion. So again, thinking about you know kind of warfare and what it means to all of those other problems and how many of those other problems, poverty and racism, are encompassed within the larger problem of, of global conflict is, is where this book can at least engage discussions on where we should go next and what we should do now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and just before we wrap up, I wanted to ask, um, 
perhaps in the context of the kind of um, mobile teaching, uh, at-home teaching that we're finding ourselves doing as as educators, um, but also just more broadly speaking, particularly because of the stakes that you just laid out, how how might we go about teaching something like Tacky's Revolt, uh, especially because it slots both <coughs> easily, as, as you've laid out, or, or quite well into a number of distinct um, historiographies, but also because it has been so easily left out um, mm. of uh, the kinds of things one might one might learn in the survey course of any mm. one place, precisely because it is um, in the middle of of the national mm. or regional narratives um, that we're so accustomed to. Oh, that's a great question, and, and and I guess it goes back to what I was saying about you know history not fitting neatly within a lot of the containers that we use that we use to uh, to organize it. Um, and so I think of this this book as being a book that would fit perfectly in a, a human ecology class when one wants to think about the interrelationships across various landscapes and environments. This is the kind of book that I think would help. When one wants to think about how things that happen in far off and ostensibly isolated locales can have reverberations on the other side of the world, this is the kind of book that can help with that kind of thinking. If one just wants to start with a kind of national canon and historiography and play out a, you know, a kind of a linear story within that, this book may not help. But when one wants to place, you know, a national history within a larger global landscape, I think this is just the kind of book that does that. So for example, Taki himself is almost a national hero uh, in Jamaica. And there's, there's, a, there's a significant effort being led by many a- activists to make Taki a national hero in Jamaica. Um, what this book shows is that A, Taki wasn't alone, and that he was part of a much larger um, hemispheric history um, that plays out in Jamaica, but is connected well beyond what we generally think of as strictly Jamaican history. Um, that's kind of the way I, I hope this book gets taught. It, it, as, a, as, as an example of how one draws connections between the kinds of histories we know and have become accustomed to telling and the kinds of histories we don't know, but that we certainly should. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up, but I just wanted to say before we do, uh, this has been a really helpful discussion um, and, a, and a welcome respite from thinking um, exclusively about global pandemic in a way that is less generative than the one that you laid out. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time. Well, Disha, thanks so much. And you'll let me know when, uh, when it's available online. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye.